Welcome to the Healthy Human Revolution podcast. I'm Dr. Lori Marvis, and today I'm so excited to welcome Mr. Gene Bauer. How are you, sir? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Uh, well, thank you for your time. I know it's uh, been quite a challenge. You travel a lot and do a lot of different things, but you have so much we can talk about. Um, but I'd really like to just kind of dive in first, how you even began on your road to becoming a vegan, because it's been over 30 years now, right? That's right. I went, ve- I went vegan in 1985, co-founded Farm Sanctuary in 1986. And since that time, I've been working to promote plant-based living, uh, working to combat factory farming and raise awareness. And uh, it's been amazing to see the changes over the past 30-some years. Hmm. I can only imagine what that was like back in 1985. What was your actual reason for going vegan to begin with? Because that would have made you around in your early 20s, right? That's right. I was 23 and it was a process, you know, so I grew up in the Hollywood Hills in California and I was near Griffith Park. So I was around wildlife and oak trees and nature. And I remember viscerally being hurt when I watched these beautiful oak trees being cut down so houses could be made bigger. And then I saw animals that were harmed by human activity, including a deer who got tangled in a neighbor's chain link fence in their backyard and had to be killed. I saw animals hit by cars. And I just saw the harms that human beings were causing to nature and other animals. And I ultimately didn't want to be part of that. So this was my sort of childhood experience and kind of visceral pain and hurt at seeing others hurt, specifically animals in nature. And then in high school and college, I started volunteering with human rights organizations, Uh, environmental organizations, and working with various activists and learning about factory farming and how inefficient it is to grow crops to feed animals, how cruel factory farming is, and how we can ultimately live without eating other animals. So this was throughout the early 1980s uh, when I started learning about these issues, working with various activist groups. And so then I went vegan in 1985 because I didn't want to be part of this abusive system and because I realized it was possible to live well without eating other animal products, and uh, started Farm Sanctuary in 1986. And when we started the sanctuary, we didn't really have this big vision about what it would become. (laughs) Um, It was important to see firsthand what was happening. So we started visiting farms and stockyards and slaughterhouses to document conditions, and we'd find living animals literally thrown on piles of dead animals or in trash cans, so we started rescuing them. And that's how the sanctuaries began. And we realized pretty quickly that it was not possible to rescue all of the animals, so we started campaigning for changes in the system. And fundamentally, what ultimately needs to happen, I think, is we need to shift towards plant-based agriculture and away from animal agriculture. And we're at a point now where I think more and more people are ready to hear that message. Hmm. So can you tell, I'm just, curious, is it when you were growing up, was your family into activism or I mean what was their role was there a role in that at all? Because I'm I'm just thinking my kids are in their twenties now and I'm thinking, you know, if one of them did something that was very different than the norm, like how how was that at home when you started saying these things? Well, I was one of six kids in a conservative Catholic family. I was the oldest of six. And, you know, usually the oldest son goes into the family business <laughs> or becomes an engineer or goes into the military in, in a family like mine. But none of those things appealed to me. And uh, so I was kind of the hippie kid that did mm. different. <laughs> 
And ultimately, I'm very glad that I did what I felt good about instead of doing what I didn't feel good about. And right. uh, so at first, I remember, you know, I, I studied sociology in college for my undergraduate degree. And I remember, you know, my dad would say, so you got a college degree and you're in a barn cleaning up animal poop? What's that all about? You know, he didn't, so I didn't quite get the full picture. Uh, but as time went and they saw how the organization was making making headway, raising awareness, passing laws, uh, and as they saw more and more people getting into this, I think they felt better about it. And, and right now, I would say they're they're supportive. Um, they're not true believers like I am, but they're mm-hmm. supportive. And it's been very good to see that evolution. Oh, that's wonderful. You, you do. You have to support your kids in their their desires and passions. I have my youngest went from a pre-med major to business to finally going back to film, which he's always enjoyed. And, <laughs> and they're yeah. all vegan, which is a blast. But um, so um, curious there, could you tell us a little bit about the first animal that was rescued, Hilda? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, as I mentioned, we started visiting farms and stockyards uh, and slaughterhouses to document conditions. And one stockyard we spent a lot of time at was Lancaster Stockyards in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. At the time, it was the largest stockyard east of Chicago. It was huge. And behind the stockyard was the dead pile, where animals who died in transit or who died through the process were just dumped. And they were there to be picked up by the rendering truck who took these dead bodies to the rendering plant where they'd be turned into soaps and fertilizers and and animal food. Um, So this dead pile, uh, you know, was a a regular place we would visit just to kind of monitor. And on this one particular day in August 1986, we came upon this dead pile and there were dead sheep, dead pigs, dead cows, and maggots so thick you could hear them buzzing as they were devouring these carcasses. It was again a hot August day. And then one of the sheep on this pile lifted her head and was alive. So we were stunned that a living animal would be thrown on this dead pile. We took her from the dead pile, took her to a veterinarian thinking she'd have to be euthanized. But as he started examining her, she stood up and she ended up living with us for more than 10 years. So that was Hilda, our first rescued animal, who was a downed animal. And a downed animal is one that's too sick to walk. And probably what happened is that a truck full of, you know, hundreds of sheep went many hours to arrive at Lancaster Stockyards. And then the sheep who could walk, walked off the truck into the stockyard. And then the driver probably drove around back and the sheep that were dead or appeared dead were just dumped on the dead pile. And Hilda, I think, passed out probably because of the stress and the heat of the trip and was unconscious when they arrived. And so she was dumped like a dead animal. And after a while, you know, she kind of came back and uh, ended up living with us for a long time. That It's an incredible story. So it was obviously meant to be your ambassador there in the beginning. Um, yeah. You mentioned also, and I've read about your documenting these things in stockyards and, you know, different areas. What was that like? Would you go into that type of situation? I mean, I, I can't even imagine how visceral and emotional it must be and then just keep calm and, and actually produce some type of footage. And what was that like? 
Yeah, it was it was not pleasant, as as I'm sure you can imagine. Um, and the goal was to observe and witness and document. So, you know, when you're going into those situations, you really become very task oriented. Go in, get the pictures, get out. And if there's an animal who's on a dead pile or in a trash can who you can help, then you help them. But really the goal was to go in, document conditions, and get out. And this was before the current technique of investigations. You know, nowadays people will actually get a job in these places and they will be there for a period of time. I just sort of go in, get pictures and get out. <laughs> you know, so right. it wasn't something that I was in the middle of for days at a time. I would maybe be at a place for an hour or maybe a little longer, but not very long because, you know, the farmers really would not want me to be there. Um, um, But it was was difficult to see the conditions. Um, And sometimes it would hit me more after I got out, because when you're in there, the adrenaline is going, you're getting pictures, you're getting out. It's a bit of a tense situation. You don't know if somebody's going to show up. And there had been times when I'd been uh, uh, dealt with people, you know, found me in these places and it wasn't fun when that happened. Um, But, you know, you get out and then you look at the images and you see the animals in the cages still. And you're out and you know they're still there. And that's, Mm -hmm. you know, for me was was sobering. And um, being able to rescue animals was also kind of a way to heal myself as well as the animals. Because then you had a positive situation to focus on, watching an animal come out of one of those situations and watching them heal and then watching them go outside for the first time and walk on the pasture and start to enjoy life really kind of helped us also to to heal from observing this cruelty over and over again. And when you mentioned us, who was your first advocates or partners in doing this? Well, we did this with many volunteers over the years, but Farm Sanctuary was co-founded by myself and my now ex-wife, Lori. So she and I co-founded it together and, and did a lot of these things together in the early days. I see. Okay. And so you decided to do this in New York? Were you living in New York to begin with? I know you have one in California, but how did you decide in the place that you landed? Well, we actually started in Wilmington, Delaware, because oh. an, an activist friend of ours had this house that was basically abandoned, and he needed people to live in it so it didn't get... Uh, foreclosed on. And uh, so it was a mess. We moved into this house and had to do a lot of cleaning up. Uh, And it was a little row house in Wilmington with a small backyard. Uh, And so we did, you know, animal rescue. We rehabilitated them in the backyard of this little house. And then we placed them in good homes. And then uh, we were selling veggie dogs at Grateful Dead shows to raise funds. And we also did a little bit of sort of catering where we would, you know, cook meals and people would give us money for that. So we had to get a bunch of tofu. And so I met this tofu farmer who had extra land in Pennsylvania. And so he let us use some of his land for a couple of years. And we lived in a school bus on the tofu farm for a couple of years. So <laughs> so it was really bootstraps, man. It was just, we did what we could do uh, on a very tight budget. I mean, the first year our budget was like, or something like that. Mm 
from these veggie dog sales. And it was an all volunteer organization. Um, but what brought us to Watkins Glen, New York, ultimately was uh, farms that were very affordable. Um, sure. We were down in the mid-Atlantic, Delaware, Pennsylvania, spending a lot of time at Lancaster Stockyards and, you know, in that part of Pennsylvania, documenting conditions at farms. And I started reading Lancaster Farming, which is a farming newspaper, and they had a real estate section. And, you know, after a few years, the row house in Delaware and the tofu farm was too small. We needed more space. Um, so I started looking at the real estate section and there was a lot of land that was for sale in the Finger Lakes region of New York. Hmm. And then this one farm was offered that we ended up buying and it was advertised as a 175 acre farm with a seven bedroom house, barns, tractors, and equipment. And they were asking 110,000 for it. Oh, wow. We offered 95. They agreed to 100,000. And then we did a walk for farm animals, raised $25,000 as a down payment. And that got us to Watkins Glen, New York. So that's why we got oh, wow. to stay in New York. And this was at the end of 1989. And like many things, we kind of moved into the house and the place was a mess. <laughs> so we spent the next few months cleaning up the house, cleaning up the property. And then we, in the summer of 1990, moved the animals up from the tofu farm in Pennsylvania uh, to the farm in Watkins Glen, New York. And we've been there ever since. And we also oh. have a place now near Los Angeles. And we work with sanctuaries all over the country. And in fact, there are now hundreds of sanctuaries around the world. Um, I, I was just in Portugal at a really amazing place in the northern part of the country. Um, and so there's a whole farm sanctuary movement now, which is great in one sense, because it is people who care, who want to make a difference, who want to provide care for animals who have suffered. But also, it's a movement that requires enormous resources and time and energy. And it is also possible for sanctuaries to get over their head. So it's a I think for sanctuaries to operate in a very thoughtful way and to be able to say no, because even if we could rescue a million animals every year, it would be a drop in the bucket. Millions of animals are killed every day, you know, and billions every year. So we ultimately need to change the system. Uh, sanctuaries play a role in rescuing a small number of individuals and then creating a model where these animals are our friends, not our food. And so model this different kind of relationship with these animals. But ultimately, we need to change the food system. And I think farms, farm sanctuaries can actually start playing more of a role in growing food and giving people tools for compassionate vegan living, not just rescuing animals, but also living plant-based lifestyles. Absolutely. So um, when you mentioned the food component, because I know you have you've done a lot of talks regarding the food system and things that need to change there and that this is just not affecting us, just the animals, but us as humans in our environment. Can you give us a little bit of background on what your work is and what we can do maybe to help? Yes, absolutely. Well, now the reason farm animals suffer is because people eat them or eat cow's milk or chicken's eggs or products that come from these animals who are exploited. So citizens, in most cases are unwitting accomplices to this industry. And, 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 and it's hard sometimes to bring that to people's attention without 
them wanting to turn off and close their eyes and say, don't tell me, I don't want to know. Mm. One of the reasons I think people are hesitant to look deeply at these issues is that they feel that they cannot change or that they do not have a choice or that they need to eat meat for protein or they need to drink cow's milk for calcium. They have these beliefs, which are actually myths. Mm. Um, They might believe that vegan food isn't very tasty. So I think a very effective way at creating change is showing people how tasty vegan food can be. And it can be one of the most powerful tools we have is to bring great vegan food to non-vegan events. Uh, So for Thanksgiving, for example, at Farm Sanctuary, we have events where the turkeys are our friends, not our food. And we say, save the turkeys instead of eating them, feed the turkeys instead of eating them. And people can sponsor turkeys who live at Farm Sanctuary. But for people who are not going to be able to come to the sanctuary uh, and may be going to a Thanksgiving dinner with their family, I would encourage them to bring tasty vegan food just to show that there's amazing things you can eat as a vegan and that it's not that hard. And, And I think as people start recognizing that there is this great vegan food, their resistance to looking at these issues will be less because they will not feel like they can't change. If, you know, and if one of the worst things in the world is to feel like you're doing something wrong and to feel like you can't change. Right. Uh, and right now, when we talk about factory farming and our animal-based food system and most people being part of it, you know, most people don't really feel good about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if they feel that they cannot change or they're not going to like vegan food or it's not gonna provide the nutrition they need, then they're kind of in this don't tell me I don't want to know phase. So showing people that there is tasty vegan food kind of gets over that that initial emotional hurdle. Mm-hmm. And I think makes it a lot easier for people then to look at the ethical issues about how animals are treated. Um, but, but another really strong argument in recent years has been the health argument, which I think has brought many people to look at plant-based food I think most people would would rather eat food that doesn't make them sick. I think that's a very strong driver right now. Uh, There's also a lot more awareness about the climate crisis and how animal agriculture is inefficient. It requires enormous amounts of land and resources. It's causing us to cut down rainforests and destroy ecosystems to grow more feed, you know, crops like soybeans, for example, to feed farm animals. So, so animal agriculture is a, a huge contributor to the climate crisis and other environmental harm, which is another driver now, I think, of consumer awareness and change. Um, and then, of course, there's the ethics about animals. There's ethics about people who work in these factory farms and slaughterhouses. Um, there's ethics around uh, food deserts or food apartheid parts of the world where people don't have access to good, healthy, plant-based foods. And like in inner cities in the United States, for example, you know, there's junky processed food uh, and people are getting sick. So, you know, there's all kinds of issues around our food system now that that can all be solved by shifting to a whole foods plant-based diet. And so it's one thing that can address so many problems. Right. Absolutely. So it that that's just that vegan really is the the wave of the future for all of us regardless 
of our taste preferences. It really is the answer. So speaking of food and tasty vegan food, can we go back to 1985 and what, because you did not have all the alternatives or it wasn't as easy. I don't think because there was much information. I mean, I think I was 15 and I can't even fathom what that was like eating. So tell me what that was like for you. (laughs) Well, you know, I was hanging out with a bunch of very hardcore animal rights, vegan types. So Mm. we to help each other find vegan food and, uh, but it was still much more difficult than it is today. Um, you know, for soy milk, for example, we used to mix powder with water to make soy milk. You know, now you go to a mainstream grocery store and there's not only soy milk, but there's almond milk and coconut milk and oat milk and a wide variety of plant-based alternatives to cow's milk. So it's a lot easier now than, it, than, than ever. But there's always been things like fruits, vegetables, mm-hmm. whole grains, beans. Those have always been around. And in the early days, we spent more time shopping at co-ops and places like that. Uh, today, you can get a lot of the same types of foods at mainstream grocery stores, or actually, they're probably more processed, in fact, than they right. were then. Um, but the way Farm Sanctuary funded our work back in the early days from like 1986 to 1989 was selling vegan hot dogs out of our Volkswagen van at Grateful Dead shows. And these were canned veggie dogs, <laughs> uh, made by Loma Linda, you know, which is associated with the Seventh-day Adventists who promote right. vegetarianism. So when we were on the road selling these veggie dogs, we would oftentimes find the Seventh-day Adventist church in the area because they usually had a store that sold these veggie hot dogs. So you could still find uh, vegan food, but it was much less common than it is today. Wow. So it was almost like a treasure hunt for certain things other than it was, it was but you know just get the phone book because you know this is before iPhones and all that kind of stuff and you know look up Adventist bookstore or you know in the neighborhood and if you found, you'd call them on the phone pay phone right. and then find out where they were and then you'd go there and and buy these veggie dogs had to make sure they had a lot of them because when we were on the road we would buy them by the case you know mm-hmm. we sell hundreds or more every day at these Grateful Dead shows. And why did you choose Grateful Dead? Well, it was an open-minded audience and they were very accessible. You could just drive your van and set up shop in the parking lot at these Grateful Dead shows. So that's what we did. And uh, it was like a traveling festival, you know, from city to city. Uh, And it was some interesting times. And, uh, you know, we also did education. We had um, literature that we distributed we had displays about factory farming. So we did education as well as raised funds by selling the veggie hot dogs. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> I can only imagine the Grateful Dead in the middle of the 80s, the late 80s. Oh my goodness, and selling vegan hot dogs. I mean, that really is creative and a solution because you weren't able to go on social media and do different things like that online. I mean, it really is remarkable. <laughs> now it was, a, it was a different time and I'm really grateful for those days and yeah. for the amount of support we were able to garner through the veggie hot dog sales. And we also went to environmental festivals. We went mm. to rights uh, festivals and, and uh, events and sold veggie hot dogs and um, worked on building up a support base. So a number of the people who bought veggie dogs, you know, ended up becoming Farm Sanctuary members. And that's how the whole thing began. 
So how did you first connect with these individuals? I mean, because, you know, you said you were hanging out with folks that were animal rights activists. Like, I mean, it wasn't like I could just go, like I said, like on the internet and search, you know, events near me. Like, how did you back in the, those days actually connect with individuals? Was it just meeting one person and going from there and building that network that way? Or It was really old school organizing. You know, so we had this row house in Wilmington, Delaware. We had vegan potlucks. And ah. so it put it in the little calendar listing in the local newspaper and people started showing up for these vegan potlucks. Huh. And it kind of, then they would talk to their friends and it was just very much grassroots, ground up organizing. Oh, that is... You know, and there must have been some nice things with that, though, because you're building that personal relationship, something local, so different than now. It is. It was really community oriented, which I think ultimately things have to be. It's sort of like when you're doing advocacy work, um, there's sort of an air game where you have social media and, you know, TV ads and radio. It's more in the air. And then you have the ground game, which is more, you know, person to person, you know, more tactile, more. Uh, connected. So you have to have the air game and the ground game when you're doing this sort of work. And back in those days, it was much more on the ground, uh, needless Mm. to say. You know, there there is certainly a big benefit to social media and the information that's accessible on the internet, Uh, but it's a lot of information and it's not very deep in some cases. So I think you need both the deep information, the deep touch, and the more kind of you know, widespread information that's available online right now. Absolutely. Um, and because that's kind of what we're doing with Health Human Revolution. We have the online presence, but then we're also doing actually individual conferences. We're going to different places to help people learn how to actually sustain a whole food plant-based diet and help them do that change. Because that's kind of where Anthony that you know and I have really focused on keeping the momentum going in someone's life. And so that seems to work really well in person. Yeah, we're social animals and we need support in our community. And that, you know, is one of the things for vegans that has historically been really tough. Mm. Sort of a minority point of view challenging this mainstream belief system. And, you know, for me, I was hanging out with a bunch of like vegan activists. So had a pretty strong support base. But we were a small group uh, that was sort of, you know, going to combat with the world in many ways. And I think now, you know, the vegan mindset is becoming more mainstream, more normalized, and it's, you know, integrating more as opposed to being, you know, more of an outside radical, uh, perceived Mm -hmm. radical. Um, So, but but it's changing. I think it's positive that it's becoming more normalized. Absolutely. And Speaking of you know, normalization, I mean, you're, you've also been working with legislations in Arizona and different places. You know, can you tell us a little bit about your your work there? Because I think that would be difficult in some cases. I don't know how how would you approach something like that, or how did you get involved? Yeah, well, we would. You know, we started by rescuing animals and documenting cruelty, and we recognized early on that we could not rescue you know, that many animals and we needed to deal with systemic problems. And so, unfortunately, farm animals have been excluded from basic humane laws. They're exempt from many state animal cruelty laws. They're exempt from the Federal Animal Welfare Act. The only federal law that addresses the humane treatment of farm animals, ironically, is the Humane Slaughter Act. And that exempts the vast majority of the animals 
who are the birds who are killed. Like over 95% of the animals killed are birds and they're excluded from the Humane Slaughter Act. So laws are very weak when it comes to farm animal protection. Um, and we have worked for years to try to change that, to pass laws to give these animals some protection to stop some of the worst abuses. But the legislative process is something that is very much a reflection of power and animal agriculture is very powerful, very influential. We were able to start making some legal breakthroughs legislatively when we went to the initiative process, which is where you put a measure on the ballot for a popular vote. The first time we did this was in Florida. We got a measure on the ballot in 2002 to ban the use of gestation crates, which are two foot wide metal enclosures where pigs are kept during their gestation period, which is most of their lives. And voters in Florida voted to ban gestation crates. We then did a similar initiative in Arizona to ban gestation crates for pigs and veal crates where calves are chained by their neck and able to even turn around for their whole lives. And so in Arizona, we were able to ban veal crates and gestation crates in 2006. Then in 2008, we went to California with another initiative to ban gestation crates and veal crates. And this time we added battery cages for egg laying hens who are put in these cages packed so tightly they can't even stretch their wings. So we said they needed more space and California passed that initiative in 2008. There have been several other initiatives and also laws now that have passed. Uh, one of the very positive things that's occurred in recent years is like in California, for example, there's not only a ban on the production of these inhumane products, but there's a ban on the sale of eggs from battery cage hens, for example. So that means that if you wanna sell eggs in California, you have to adhere to the standards in California. And that then has much wider reaching ramifications. So that's been happening in recent years and I think it's positive, but ultimately what we need to do, I think from a legislative policy standpoint is we need to start shifting government subsidies and institutional support away from animal agriculture towards plant-based agriculture. Every year, the government spends billions of dollars to bolster and support animal agriculture. Mm. And you, know, you have dairy farmers who are actually gonna be going out of business. They're really struggling. But rather than supporting them in transitioning to a different kind of farming, you know, a farming that is actually much more needed. We need to eat more fruits and vegetables and plant foods. Um, the government is giving them money to stay in dairy production, even though we have a glut of excess cheese, like over a billion pounds of excess cheese in storage. So we're producing this product that people don't need, that makes people sick, that we can't get, that we have too much of, uh, and it just makes no sense. So we need to start moving some of these institutional programs away from where they have been uh, to better serve the interests of consumers and farmers and society at large. And so that's the kind of structural shift that ultimately we need to see. Uh, and uh, I'm looking at ways to do that and working with a number of colleagues and speaking to a lot of people about it. Uh, it's going to be a challenge because, you know, when a particular industry is used to getting billions of dollars for a certain practice, uh, they're not going to want to change overnight. Uh, but hopefully we can start incrementally moving some of these resources and subsidies away from 
this current unhealthy, broken system where animals suffer, where farmers suffer, where the environment is being destroyed, and where consumers also are not, not doing well, and where we're spending gobs and gobs of money in such un, unwise ways. Right. Absolutely. There's so much to, you could unwrap there, but as far as the one thing that the everyday consumer can do, would it just be to one, just spend our dollars while we're eating, but is there anything else legislatively, you know, what else can they do to maybe feel like they're doing something a little bit more than just voting with their dollar? Yeah. Well, voting with our dollars is the first thing. And that's something that all can do every day. And those choices matter. Um, we can also be agents of change in our communities, you know, being a positive influence on others around us, bringing great vegan food to work or to various social functions and showing people how tasty it is. That's a very good form of grassroots activism. Um, also, it's positive to get to know our elected officials and to start expressing some of our concerns with them uh, and also getting to know local businesses you know, asking restaurants to make more plant-based food available and, and then supporting them as, and voting with our dollars and bringing groups. There's, there's these vegan dining clubs that will reach out to a restaurant and say, we've got 10 people that want to come out for a vegan meal. Is that something you could provide? And that then gives the restaurant the incentive to have vegan food. Then you have this group that goes out and eats at the restaurant together. And then if it goes well, and hopefully it does, then the restaurant maybe adds that to their menu and you'd go from restaurant to restaurant and hopefully you can build a whole vegan plant-based movement in a community that way. Um, but when it comes to state or federal legislators, um, you know, it's going to take time, but it's important also to get to know them, to vote, you know, at the polling place and to just start expressing your concerns, writing letters to the editor of local newspapers, although nowadays more and more that is social media, mm -hmm. uh, you know, going on different businesses' Twitter accounts or Facebook pages or their other social media and expressing your opinion about things. And it's important to do this in a very respectful way mm -hmm. and not to do it in a way that turns people off or is in any way demeaning or disrespectful of others who have a different opinion. Uh, so that's a whole process too of kind of activism and learning how to communicate in a way that is truly compassionate and speaks to people where they are on their own journeys and looks for common ground and builds from there. So, you know, I, the good news is I think most people would rather not support cruelty to animals. Most people would rather eat food that is nourishing and doesn't make them sick. Right. People would rather support a food system that doesn't destroy the planet the way animal agriculture does. So we've got an awful lot to go with. And ultimately, people have to make their own choices, but it's important for them to be able to make informed choices. And so I think we can each play a role in helping to inform people about the problems with factory farming and the benefits of plant-based eating. And then ultimately to encourage people to live in a way that is ultimately aligned with their own values and their own interests. And I think if we did that, we would see a revolution in the food industry. So when you look back over the, the years that you've been doing this, where do you feel like, you've, I mean, obviously seen a lot of changes already occurring. Where do you think that tipping point is? Do you think it's in the next five years, 10 years? Because I mean, I'm seeing 
my children grow up and they're, you know, in their twenties, I got one in medical school, I got two college kids and I'm seeing their, their views of the world are so different. And they're seeing these other problems that they're going to be facing as they reach into their forties and fifties. Where do you feel like that tipping point is? Do you feel it's coming faster or? I think things are moving very fast right now. I think that social media is a big uh, part of the shift when people have access to information. I think that the younger generation is looking at the climate crisis and is really legitimately concerned about it. I think also you have businesses that are starting to invest in the plant-based space. And you know, one big sort of statement, tipping point in a way, was when Beyond Meat went public and it opened at $25 a share on Wall Street. And within like a week, it was over $100 a share. Mm-hmm. That got a lot of people's attention uh, in the business community. And it really helped to normalize this concept that the future is and should be vegan. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a lot of, you know, still resistance to change. There are institutions and mechanisms that are profiting from the current system, including healthcare. I mean, the pharmaceutical industry makes a lot of money on illness. Um, and, you know, so change is going to happen slowly. Uh, and so I don't think it's going to be one tipping point. I think it's going to be a complex process. Um, and it's going to be individuals making changes. It's going to be institutions making changes. It's going to be businesses recognizing that there's new opportunities. Uh, there's going to be technology, I think, also mm-hmm. that's going to be part of this. You know, back in the 1990s, we actually in, encouraged and convinced our local Burger King in Watkins Glen, New York, to sell a veggie burger. And it did extremely well. And this was a local business owner. He's a franchise owner, had like 20 restaurants in upstate New York. Uh, and the Burger King corporate said, sure, go ahead, and didn't think it was going to amount to anything. But it sold very well. So he ended up expanding his test market of this BK veggie throughout upstate New York. It did very well. And then in the 1990s, um, I mean, we had a whole campaign around this. You know, they used to have that 1-800 number for, you know, it used to be their slogan, have it your way at Burger King. They don't have an 800 number anymore. We really uh, and we had protests and we worked with different, uh, there was a franchise owner in Berkeley, California, who wanted to do a veggie burger and BK corporate wouldn't let them at that point. So it was a whole campaign. Wow. But, but ultimately they did sell the BK veggie nationwide. Uh, now they didn't market it, they didn't promote it uh, very much, but it was available. Today, they're now selling the Impossible Whopper. And it, I think, reflects the kind of change, and this gets into technology, where this burger is a lot more like a beef burger than the BK veggie that they were selling previously. Mm. It is something that appeals probably to more consumers that are used to going to Burger King. So that's part of the shift. I think inserting vegan burgers in fast food restaurants is a positive step, although fast food restaurants ultimately are not ideal. Right. So that, but that is an example of a tipping point, getting the BK, the, the impossible Whopper at Burger King nationwide is a major step. Right. Uh, it's a step beyond the BK veggie, which was a step. Uh, so these... I think tipping points are getting bigger as time goes. And, um, but we still need, I think, government leadership, and, and that's going to take some time. Wow. 
Well, I certainly think uh, your leadership is one thing to be thankful for. And I know we're coming up on the time that we allotted here. And so I, I just really want to thank you for all your work. And I really appreciate you being the pioneer back in the day. It's kind of like, you know, when I talked to Dr. Esselstyn or Dr. Campbell and those guys for kind of being 40 years out, you know, I just can't even imagine. So, but I do want to say thank you. And do you have any last bit of advice for anyone else that you can think of that maybe considering going to a plant-based diet? Well, I think it's it makes all the sense in the world if you look at the issues and if you care about your health and well-being, if you care about the health of the planet, if you care about the health and well-being of other animals, uh, just think about our food choices and the profound impacts those have on ourselves and others. And I think it makes sense if people just, you know, pay attention and just don't do something because everybody else around you is doing it. And just because our species has done something for a long time doesn't mean that we should continue doing it. Um, you know, it's important to be thoughtful and mindful and then ultimately to make choices that we can feel good about and that are aligned with our values and interests. And when it comes to food, those choices have profound impacts. So it's important to pay attention. Absolutely. So paying attention and seeing what you're doing and being aligning your values with what your actions are. So thank you again. Exactly. I really appreciate you. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate you too. And, and uh, thanks for doing this. And uh, we'll probably talk again in the future at some point. Absolutely. 